Hello, everyone. This is Volts for February 17th, 2023. The Digital Circuit Breaker and Why It Matters. I'm your host, David Roberts. There is perhaps no building block of the electricity grid more fundamental, ubiquitous, and overlooked than the humble circuit breaker. Every electronic device that is attached to the grid runs through a circuit breaker, a device that automatically shuts off current in the case of a fault or surge. Currently, though they have become extremely reliable, circuit breakers still rely on technology that was patented by Thomas Edison. They operate purely through electromechanical forces with no digital control. My guest today, Ryan Kennedy, is the first person to develop, patent, pass UL testing with, and commercialize a digital circuit breaker. It is solid state, that is, it has no moving parts, and current is controlled entirely through semiconductors. In addition to being faster and safer than electromechanical equivalents, each digital circuit breaker contains within it its own firmware and software, which can be programmed to emulate, and thereby replace, any number of other software-driven devices like demand management systems, load controllers, meters, and surge protectors. Kennedy's company, Atom Power, is currently focused on the electric vehicle charging market, offering smart load balancing and management from a centralized circuit board, replacing the need for complicated hardware and software in the EV chargers themselves. But the ultimate applications for a digital circuit breaker are endless. Everywhere they are attached, a grid becomes a smart grid, and appliances become smart appliances. If even a substantial fraction of today's circuit breakers could be replaced with digital equivalents, it would bring unprecedented visibility and control to millions of distributed energy devices, enabling all sorts of sophisticated demand management and grid control. I was extremely geeked to talk to Kennedy about the basics of circuit breakers, their application to EV charging, and the many, many possibilities that lie beyond. All right, then, Ryan Kennedy, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. David, thank you for having me. This is uh, awesome. I'm so interested in this in this widget and its possibilities. But I think to help people get their heads around it, before we get too deep into anything, let's just start at the most basic level for those of us who were uh, humanities majors and never took any electrical engineering or anything. Let's just talk about what is a circuit breaker. I know people are vaguely very vaguely aware of circuit breakers. They are in a circuit box in your garage. Occasionally your power goes out and you wander out to your garage and flip switches around and try to see what works. But that's, I think that's probably the extent of most people's knowledge. So let's just start there. Circuit breakers, um, electrically speaking, are one of the oldest products on the market. They first were invented, at least patented by Thomas Edison, to show you how far back they go. (laughs) But they're effectively a a method of interrupting the flow of electricity when things go wrong. Too much current, short circuits, things like that. The purpose of the circuit breaker is to simply open the circuit when those things happen and protect from fire, primarily. And presumably protecting... um you know, the appliances and the things on the other end of the of the wire too, right? Generally, that's the assumption, though. I, I don't know that it's necessarily the explicit purpose. Uh, I think the more explicit purpose is to prevent fire. That could mean your equipment may go bad <laughs> in the process. <laughs> right. uh, but generally speaking, they're, yeah, to prevent like fire and um, hazardous conditions, you know, from electricity. And so every appliance or or device or anything that uses electricity from the grid is connected to the grid through a circuit breaker. Is that true? Is that a universal rule? That's right. That's right. Actually, you know, the easiest way to visualize that is to think about the the home, you know, or apartment where you have a, a panel with breakers in it. 
you know, they typically open the front door and you can see breakers in there and you flip switches, you know, when things go wrong. So basically, you know, you have a big power feed from the utility that comes into that home to that panel. And then out of that panel, power gets distributed through each one of those little circuit breakers out to individual loads in your home, such as hot water, HVAC, lights, receptacles. Mm. Um, that scales out, you know, commercial buildings and industrial buildings and data centers, the exact same thing. I mean, there's more breakers right? and they often get bigger, <laughs> but it's the exact same architecture across the entire planet where the circuit breaker always is the th- the thing that sits in front of the thing that consumes energy. Right. And so the, the, the purpose of these things is to basically shut off current if something goes wrong. How do they do that currently? There's a couple different ways, but the most predominant way is it gets into a little bit of engineering speak, so I'll try not to dive too deep. But basically, <laughs> it's through thermals and magnetics. Um, so... There's kind of two situations you would have, and let's just pick on the home a little bit because the same problems scale upward to commercial industrial buildings. Um, when you say plug in way too many things into the outlet, the breaker will trip, and that's trip through thermals. It means that um, too much current is flowing, things get hot, and some expansion happens inside of the circuit breaker, and mechanically speaking, it flips a spring <laughs> and causes the breaker uh, to open. So it's not. A heat sensor, it's literally the heat expands something physical and the physical change trips something. It literally expands the metal inside of the breaker to open it up. That's what happens. Huh. The second, um, there's, so there's two methods. So the, that was thermal. The, the second is called uh, magnetic. That mechanism, it operates physically the same way. The actual like springs and levers inside of the breaker open up the same way, but it, what causes it uh, is different. So magnetic happens when you have say a short circuit don't do this at home but if you took one of your wires you know from your home and just put it into a pool you know lots of current flow all of a sudden really really fast that's called a short circuit and you don't want to wait for things to heat up because that's when you know really bad things happen so what happens is is an enormous amount of current starts flowing through that circuit breaker creates a pretty quick magnetic field that basically pushes the metals apart inside of the breaker to open it up as well. So it's uh, very much a passive device in the sense that there's nothing in them that say, oh, that's that, or this is that, so therefore I need to do this. It's, it's, a, it's a reaction of the metals uh, inside of uh, the product itself. Um, it's quite, a, quite an old technology, actually. Uh, if you opened up a circuit breaker, it looks like a mousetrap condensed. Yeah, a tiny little mousetrap that's basically set off by heat or a magnetic field. You think about electricity these days, you think about all our sort of digital devices and digital controls, and it's a little bit wild that like on every single line going to every single device, there's this mousetrap, like a very, very, just just so old-fashioned. It always struck me as so weirdly old-fashioned, a little piece of metal with like springs on it that springs shut to cut off your electricity so it's very mechanical, let's say, electromechanical, as you say. Yes. Very uh, established uh, technology that is in today's world relatively ancient uh, from a technological standpoint. But to achieve those basic results of circuit protection, you know, they work. The basic results of circuit protection. Right. And it's uh, passive, as we say, just a response to perturbations. And it's, I guess you'd, you'd say dumb in that it doesn't know. <laughs> There's no awareness of what's happening or why it's happening. It's just metal expands, it flips, it cuts off. That's correct. So there must be millions and millions and millions <laughs> of these things. I mean, if there's one of these things between every electrical load and the grid, there must be billions out there in the world. Likely, yes. Uh, yeah, I think your number, your first number was correct. Millions and millions and millions. <laughs> <laughs> so what you've done is make a digital circuit breaker, which works differently than the electromechanical. So why don't we just start with, if it's not a physical reaction, if it's not a physical thing happening inside this digital circuit breaker, what, what is happening? How does it work? So let's, uh, we can dive into the, the technical and the how it works, and then it, it'd be good to talk about kind of why we're doing that. So first, the technical. 
and the reason I say that is because, well, if breakers work, why why do anything to them, right? But technically speaking, how what we've done is we've created a digital circuit breaker. Uh, more specifically, we call that a solid state circuit breaker. What that is is saying, hey, instead of using mechanics uh, or mechanical devices, uh, meaning like metal on metal, the things we just talked about, to conduct electricity through a breaker, let us use semiconductors instead. So semiconductors are a broad ranging topic, but basically means that um, you can control current with a small digital input, much like you can on your phone or computer, et cetera. So, but scale that up to power and say, well, let's make a circuit breaker with semiconductors so that you can now interrupt in the case of protection, you know, um, Mm -hmm. the circuits when bad things happen with semiconductors instead of mechanics. With that, we overlay it. And so what happens when you go to a semiconductor approach, it is very much an analog as if you said, what's the difference in a rotary phone versus a smartphone? It's making that leap all at once, because now with digital control, meaning semiconductor control at the breaker, it means that you can now put smart things inside of the breaker and make it do things and add value that it typically didn't have. That's what we're doing. You know, I just want to stress on the core function of shutting off current in in danger. Even on that core function, it's faster. It's better and faster than a mechanical device. Is that right? That's correct. By multiple orders of magnitude. So to give you an idea, we are, I mean, roughly speaking, uh, about 3,000 times faster (laughs) than most mechanical breakers uh, in the market. Uh, That equates to two things. One is safety. There's some uh, you know old footage of us that we don't do so much anymore of you know slapping <laughs> hot wires together to kind of show that safety function. <laughs> don't try that at home either. Uh, so that's one thing, which is actually quite important when you scale into larger buildings because there's more energy and more utility, and you know short circuits can be you know explosive events. So that it, it definitely helps in that regard. And you say um, conventional circuit breakers work, but you know we should note that like there are faults, there are fires, there are you know arc what do they call them arc events arc or whatever like yeah like they they're not 100 percent. that's right so so what's interesting about not so much in residential although this can't happen in residential but when you scale up to like the larger buildings commercially in the industrial space and especially in data centers where the utility services are very large you can have catastrophic events uh from short circuits that are balls of fire <laughs> now the breakers will open but that doesn't mean a ball of fire didn't happen in the process, right? Um, so, so that does happen. I mean, in the worst case, in my in my past life, I used to um, design buildings and also worked for a, you know a contracting firm. So I, I've seen, particularly one instance in a high rise building where there was a short circuit in the electrical room on like the nineteenth or twentieth floor. And it blew the doors off of the electrical room. <laughs> and these are like, you know, commercial grade steel doors that got blown off the electrical room. So it's amazing force that can be had when you when you get into the bigger buildings. But I digress a little bit. It certainly eliminates that problem. Let's put it that way. Go into a semiconductor just purely based on speed. And that's just because a digital signal is, travels at the speed of light, right? And it's just faster than any mechanical reaction. Is that... Yeah, inherently a, a semiconductor is going to be, like I said, I mean, the whole, including propagation delays and things like that within the compute and sensing, you know, we're around 3,000 times. And to give you an idea, that's in the microsecond range um, as opposed to millisecond range of, uh, hmm. or milliseconds, plural, in the in the case of mechanical circuit breakers. Now, okay, micro, milli, but the diff, you know, electricity does move virtually at the speed of light. So arc flash propagates, you know, not quite that quick, but pretty quick. Whereas that time really, really matters. Um, so yeah, the impact to the safety is effectively arc flash just doesn't happen uh, on the output of our, of our product, even in the largest utility services. So you get the, the basic function of the circuit breaker is, is faster and better. But then, as you say, you have this device that has semiconductors in it and you can put other stuff in there too so maybe just describe like i know what a circuit breaker looks like it's sort of it fits in the slot in my circuit box so i have the you know it's a vague idea kind of what it looks like what does your thing look like is it the same size does it what is it composed of what does it look like 
today, uh, what we have on the market doesn't look so much like what you would see in your home. Um, it looks more the size of a commercial grade circuit breaker. So can't fit in the residential panel yet with a strong emphasis on yet. But, you know, we do have, you know, a similar form factor of commercial grade uh, circuit breakers. And is that just the difficulty of shrinking down little computers and stuff? I mean, is it is it that simple? Not quite the compute. It's more the power semiconductors that actually do the switching. Um, so we're on this incredible curve that probably could take up a large portion of this conversation, but I'll, I'll simplify <laughs> it to basically mean that the world of power semiconductors is advancing quite under the hood, actually, of everything else that's happening. You know, power mm. semiconductors are what enable electric vehicles, you know, to be as efficient and as effective as they are. Power conversion and solar, UPS is lots of things power conversion related. They are advancing at a pretty rapid rate from a power density standpoint. Power density meaning like how much power you can actually pack into that power semiconductor. So mm. power density is going up, size is getting smaller. That plays into our own internal, you know, strategy as a company to optimize, you know, the form factor in the coming, you know, couple of years to where it becomes much more of a universal product that can fit into existing panel boards. But today we have, you know, our it looks like a small box uh, that fits into our. Well, we make manufacture panel boards as well, you know, so you don't have to figure that out. We figured all that out for you. Make panel boards, circuit breakers, <laughs> everything as a as a whole system. I always say that there's there's two major components to a solid state breaker. There's a brain and the heart. Uh, the brain is the control system, the stuff that you know software defined uh, that you know, makes the thing work, uh, provides cybersecurity, things like this. And then there's the heart, which is the power semiconductor that the control system attaches to. Yeah, very much like a phone in a way, in the sense you have you have a brain, you have a heart, and a phone as well, and um, that combination creates a pretty powerful component. Uh, and electrically speaking, it's that was the you know that's that's what we're doing you know in this space is really enabling so, far more than we used to. Right. So one maybe one way to think about it is that electromechanical old school circuit breakers only had hearts, <laughs> and now you've added a brain to the equation. You could see it that way. Yeah. That, absolutely. And so if all these things are digital, and if everyone has a little computer in it basically if you could if, you could, if we could think of these as, as like tiny 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 little smartphones i know one thing that comes to people's mind whenever i discuss digitizing anything is security cybersecurity. so like if if your power in your home or your commercial building or whatever if every bit of it is running through a tiny little computer you know people i think naturally wonder like what happens if they get hacked or someone takes over you know, can control the power flow through my entire building, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what's your, how do you deal with security? Ultimately, circuit breakers are life safety devices. That's, that's the core function. That, that's the phone call in the phone, right? That's a, it has to make the phone call. <laughs> right, right. So we're life safety devices. So once you shift from purely hardware to software-defined hardware in any industry, the right approach is that cybersecurity is the number one priority in software. That's been our approach uh, the whole time. Now, there's a couple ways to dice that. One is to say, or the way we describe it is, there's Stuxnet and then there's there's hackers. <laughs> and so we want to guard against both. And we call it Stuxnet as in, if you know what that is, that was the um, you know the uh, uranium enrichment thing. That Read all about that some other time. But the point is, is <laughs> in that case, the biggest threat is to make a critical device be something that it's not supposed to be or do something that it's not supposed to do. So that is priority one to say, okay, above all things, the breaker can't be made to be something that it's fundamentally not and create an unsafe condition. So how we're tackling that is really good. I'll just tell you that. Um, <laughs> there's some secret sauce there uh, that effectively amount to there's built-in safeties that are, you know, uh, still digital, but you, you basically can't get into under any circumstance. So that's priority one. And then the next priority says, okay, well, if we, we've solved that, which, which we have, then the next one is to say, well, how do we keep folks from coming in and just say shutting power off or, you know, doing 
funny things. Uh, you know, shutting power off is probably the number one funny thing there, but how do you prevent that? So I'd, I'd like to say that in the world of software, there's this standard out there and you follow that standard and you're good. That is not the case with cybersecurity for anybody. Um, there, there is, it's always evolving and you're always trying to tackle it um, and address issues as we go along. But the, the core things that we do is end-to-end encryption on both software and hardware, which means that we have encryption elements physically on the breaker, encryption elements physically on our on-site management tools and, and cloud software. So like that's that's actually quite critical um, is to have the physical encryption as well as the software-based encryption. You know, there's many ways you could go about cybersecurity in the sense of, you know, m- many different entities have cybersecurity standards, but the one that we're, you know, we're headed towards now is called FedRAMP. You know, that's that's really the direction we're headed uh, from a standard standpoint. That's, you know, to do work for the federal government, things like this. You have to be FedRAMP compliant or certified. So that's the direction we're headed. We're not certified yet. Uh, we anticipate later this year we will be. But um, nonetheless, that's kind of how we've addressed it. That is one of those areas that I wish there were this like, you know, gold star. You got that. So all's good. Right. <laughs> but, right. Because there is there is a gold star in the in the circuit breaker safety the heart part yes right the the UL standard is pretty is pretty well yeah UL is kind of our FDA equivalent in the in the world of circuit breakers yes right and you guys have passed those passed those tests we have uh, we're the first and only company in the world who have ever done that uh, for a solid state digital circuit breaker. Yeah, and one thing I don't know if we we mentioned this, but this made an impression on me when I first learned about it. So I just want to throw it out there. It's just I think when people think of networked devices, they think it won't work without the network. So it's just worth sort of um, emphasizing here that every one of these circuit breakers has the firmware and the software and the operating system inside it. So it is in some sense a self-contained little machine. Like it does its thing, even absent networking. Yes, we and we we just call that you know uh, fully autonomous. So yes, it's it's fully they're fully autonomous devices. Right, and one more thing I wanted to mention about the move from conventional to digital in circuit breakers is that this eliminates a lot of equipment that traditionally goes around circuit breakers in sort of commercial and high value areas. You know, sort of safety equipment that kind of gets larded around. Circuit breakers. So maybe just talk a little bit about that. Sort of like the kinds of things that you've consolidated into one device here. Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth stating that you know the easy part of the the power distribution world or electricity is that there's just as we said there's a circuit breaker that sits ahead of everything that consumes energy. The hard part comes in uh, where if you look at well, what do we actually do with electricity? You know, all electrical things uh, require really three things. So so any application in electricity requires protection, visibility, and control. This is related to you know HVAC, certainly related to EV charging. In the case of HVAC, you have protection in the sense of a circuit breaker that feeds the HVAC system. Inside the HVAC system, you have a control mechanism that actually controls the flow of energy in its own little way. And then you have visibility either through software or, or through the thermostat. Mm-hmm. You could say the same thing for basically everything electrically speaking. EV chargers, certainly, same thing. Every EV charger that's been built out there, with the exception of Adam Power, is fed from a breaker, always. Inside the EV charger, whether it's a pedestal or wall box, there's visibility and control. And you could say the same about elevators and many, many other things that we use electricity for. So basically... Well, the way we look at it is, what do we do with electricity? Well, we want to protect it, but we also want visibility and control. So what we've done is basically to say, okay, well, let's offer superior circuit protection, but let's also have the ability to have visibility and control because, well, that's what we do with electricity, <laughs> all within the circuit breaker. And so I think you asked a, a sort of broader question, like, what are we doing that's you know uh, kind of adding some of those things in? You know, inherently being a semiconductor device, it's easy to control the flow of energy. Mm-hmm. As simple as that sounds, that's monumental <laughs> um, because it is extraordinarily difficult to make a circuit breaker that can universally control energy, meaning universally as in, you know, in the home or in the data center or in a commercial building or an industrial building with the same device. Yeah, we should pause here just to add because I don't know that we ever actually mentioned it, but physical circuit breakers, old school circuit breakers are also 
designed for a specific voltage, right? They're sort of locked into a specific voltage. Whereas if you're doing it with, you know, computing power, you can adjust to different voltages with the same circuit breaker. Is that right? So think of it more as different amperages. Amperages. Sorry, I get those confused. No, it's okay. So like if you go to, um, you know, na- name your hardware store, if you go there and you go say, I want to buy a breaker, <laughs> the question is going to, your menu, I should say, is going to be, well, do you want a 15 amp, a 20 amp, a 25, a 30, a 40, 50, 60, et cetera. Right, right, right. And then, you know, you, you buy that product for what it is. Say, it, call it a 30 amp breaker to feed my, I don't know, hot water heater. That's going to be fairly typical. It's always going to be a 30 amp breaker forever, never, never, which means from a UL standpoint and a safety standpoint, you can only put that on 30 amp circuits. Right. I will say, yeah, that is a interesting benefit that I think evolved along Adam Powers way, which says, well, now that you become a digital circuit breaker, you can effectively be a lot of circuit breakers in one, which is what we do. I mean, you can program our circuit breakers from 15 amp all the way up to Mm. 100 amp and it's UL listed for each increment in between. So that's pretty powerful when you consider, roughly speaking, it depends on your metric, about 90% of the breakers on the planet are 100 amp and less. You know, so we're hitting a huge market with one single product. Right, right. So that's certainly one thing, you know, from a protection standpoint. And thank you for reminding me <laughs> on that. <laughs> that is a feature I often uh, gloss over. Uh, and it is unique for what we're doing. Uh, but, you know, the the visibility, obviously, through the software we have and the ability to see the breaker and control the breaker is the other thing. And to be able to tell the breaker what it is. And I think that's the key thesis within Adam, Adam Power, which is to say, well, let's not just create a digital breaker, but let's create it in a way to where you can tell the breaker what it is instead of buying a breaker. Well, because you have to for protection and then having to buy a specific built appliance for the application that you need to perform. Like EV chargers are a strong symptom of that. This is a perfect segue here because, you know, the first time we talked years ago, I think you were sort of messing around with big commercial facilities and industrial buildings and kind of a little bit all over the place. But you are you just got a hundred million dollars investment to do specifically EV charging um, applications. So tell us why all these things we're hearing about digital circuit breakers, why they're specifically well suited to EV charging. So you're right about the earlier engagements we had um, with with great customers were in the industrial space primarily. Certainly prior to the investment, we saw a need, a, a major pain point when it came to electric vehicle charging at scale. Mm-hmm. So charging vehicles has been around for quite some time. For the longest time, it's been relegated to um, if it's outside of the home, to be candid, often optics, you know, put a couple here, a couple there, just to have them, right? But as we've progressed, you know, particularly in the 2020s here, we are seeing and we saw this is why we're in this space is we saw this that there were some major, major problems with charging at scale, meaning like instead of a few chargers, put in hundreds into a single facility or complex, heck, even tens, but certainly in the hundreds, things become really problematic, really, really fast. And that's fleets. We're talking about basically fleets. Fleet, multifamily, and uh, hospitality. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, anywhere where you're going to have lots of chargers. Um, But yeah, particularly fleets, you know, always need lots of chargers. (laughs) Multifamily as well. So the problems start becoming quite extreme, you know, in those cases. To give you an example of what I mean by this, we we have a a project up in uh, Queens that is roughly, now it's, you know, close to 700 charging stations. That's going into generally the same location that is on the same you know substation, grid network, et cetera. If you do the math on that, you're basically connecting up to between six and seven megawatts of potential <laughs> load onto that grid in just in that. So appliances don't solve that very well, uh, which is more or less what you know level two chargers are today. There, there are appliances that sit in front of the car and you plug it in. When you start talking about that scale, it's really critical that your infrastructure is the smart thing that can actually solve pain points such as, hey, how do we not do that? 
how do we not have a bunch of cars charging at once and overload basically the substation? Because you could, I mean, you could fry a substation if everybody, like if you had 700 chargers going all at once. Absolutely. Things like that, things like me as a customer, how do I not spend the amount of money that you would otherwise spend on the infrastructure alone to make that happen? Meaning transformers, wire, switch gear, things like that. And then how do you, with that much energy, how do you not just say, don't overload the grid, but how do you actually effectively energy manage in real time against things like peak loads or peak demand or time of use and keep energy costs as low as you can and charge during the right times of the day? And, you know, when there's a grid event and things like this, all that requires real time infrastructure intelligence. Right. So the, the, the EV charges have to be networked with one another. They have to be communicating with one another, basically. And is that, and is that not something they can do now? I mean, like if, if I'm looking at a fleet and with a bunch of chargers today, are the EV chargers just freestanding, <laughs> isolated, or do they talk to one another now in other ways? Yeah, oftentimes they are. But there's where the problems really started was in the fleets because that started becoming apparent, right? The more that they were putting in. To answer your question, can EV chargers today, outside of atom power, talk to one another and do some level of energy management? The answer is certainly yes. That's the start of the conversation, though. The devil in the details says, okay, put that in and make it co-compliant you know, with our National Electrical Code and get the inspector to sign off on it and guarantee the building owner that that's going to operate always, no matter what, safely. Mm. There's where things get problematic. <laughs> So if you are the life safety device and you're already connected and you got to buy a breaker anyway for each EV charger, things become so easy to do. Now it's built into our panels, breakers. It meets the National Electrical Code to the T. Inspectors have no problem with that. There's a lot of things that become super easy all of a sudden. Uh, So without going into a ton of complexity, being the infrastructure, being the breaker, being the panel board where the breakers sit makes it super easy to solve those major pain points with very little effort from the customer's standpoint. Right. And I think the way to think about this and kind of what turned the light bulb on for me is if your intelligence, your software, your coordination, et cetera, is in the circuit breakers that are in the circuit board, that means the EV chargers themselves can be dumb. So that like the things that are out there in the parking lot can just be dumb conduits, right? Because the control is elsewhere. And this is something that's always struck me about the EV charging space. It's just like you have these today, you have these like really incredibly complex, you know, high power computers (laughs) sitting out in parking lots, uh, which always kind of struck me as, as a little bit insane that normal customers are interacting so directly with something so expensive and kind of, um, complicated. Well, you're hitting on the next pain point, which is, again, that scale, that becomes very problematic that your most expensive asset in that ecosystem now sits in front of the vehicle, typically outside. Right. (laughs) So the second question outside of the infrastructure cost is how do we not do that? (laughs) Can the pedestal or wall box be, wall box, not the brand, but box, you know, electrical, can that thing be very low cost, low maintenance, or zero maintenance, preferably, you know, whereas if it did get damaged, really nothing happens uh, other than I can easily replace it. And that's the answer is yes, because, yeah, you're right. And when, once you're in the once you become intelligent infrastructure and you sit safely back in the electrical room, the pedestals that have the cord sets on them become very, you know, dumb in air quotes. But the system's really smart. Right. I'm, I'm curious what sorts of things having this kind of central intelligence controlling multiple EV chargers can do. I mean, uh, we mentioned it's going to prevent, you know, whatever, 700 cars from charging at once. That's the kind of baseline. It's going to prevent so much power from running through the system that it fries the grid it's on. But what else What else can you do with that sort of central computer control? Yeah, so I would say there's a ton. <laughs> um, but, you know, the highest value ones are going to be in certainly in energy management that we've been talking about here. That relates more to th- than just to saying, hey, prevent 700 cars from charging at the same time. It says, hey, you know what? Let 700 cars actually charge at the same time, but let's intelligently distribute so that they can all get a charge and not cause right. major problems and major electrical bills. 
Um, so that's one. I mean, I would say the other one is um, it is extremely easy to create a campus environment as well with the, with the system. It kind of relates to what we spoke of earlier. Like the network connectivity is completely different from any other system as in like it's really easy to do. So it's very easy from a campus-wide perspective to say, hey, how do I connect this campus of chargers to a single system, single pane of glass that also does energy management, that also saves on electric bills, things like that. So things become very easy through that network piece. There is another element to it that says, well, kind of goes off the programmable breaker to some degree, is when you buy an EV charger today, this is another pain point, again, at scale. It can sometimes also be a pain point, not at scale, but when you buy one today, it's fixed. In other words, you know, level two charging, which is, you know, most of the charging goes all the way up to 80 amps. All right. So just take that as a number. Mm -hmm. Well, if you buy a charger, it's going to come in several different flavors. You can get a 24 amp charger. You can get a 32 amp charger, a 40 amp, a 48 amp. Mm -hmm. And then on rare occasion, an 80 amp. Because 80 amps is kind of hard to do for various reasons. There's just less of those. But nonetheless, what you buy is what you buy. And you're stuck with that. So if you buy a 32 amp charger, which is most of them on the market, that's it. You're not going to get 48 amp, you know, that a Tesla needs. You're not going to get 80 amp that a Ford F-150 needs. Uh-huh. You got 32. So you're probably picking up this a little bit that with a programmable breaker now, on the other hand, what I can do is we can just simply go the full range of charging through the same product. Right. You're buying a full level two now. Regardless, you just tell it what it is. Again, tell it what it is. And that can happen real time. You know, I could start off as 48 amp charger and then move up to an 80 amp charger, you know, a couple of years from now as more demand picks up for 80 amp charging with the same infrastructure with no stranded assets. And that's absolutely critical. So I would say that's another one. <laughs> so I've got the intelligences in the circuit board and they've got these sort of dumb chargers out in the in the parking lot. So like a bolt could pull up and charge <laughs> at that charger and the and the circuit board knows the right amperage level and then an f-150 could pull up to the same charger and get more charge because the, the circuit breaker knows correct but it's not enough to say because you were mentioning network a minute ago it's not enough to say well a programmable breaker alone solves that it, it solves a major chunk of it which says well i can now program my system to be 80 amp mm-hmm. not 48 yes but there's another element to it which says well to do that then again think of that example of 700 chargers now, if I if I boost, say, these chargers over here to 80 amp, say, call it 50 of them, right? Right. Now, the entire system has to communicate amongst itself because, well, they sit on the same utility to say, well, oh, those have 80 amp now. So we need, we need to see how we can spread the rest of them intelligently so these other folks get a charge while these get an 80 amp charge. So it's still a system level network event, right? Right. And we make that easy and out of the box effectively. Whereas it becomes extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, uh, the way things are have been done today. Right. Because I guess if you're buying multiple ones today, you're just sort of bricolaging them together piece by piece. Correct. Seems a lot, a lot more uh, like people are being asked to kind of wing it a little bit. And, you know, I, as I'm sure you know, having interacted with customers, like, you know, if I'm just like a an owner of a hotel or whatever, I don't want to no you know what i mean like i don't want to i don't want to have to think about this much you know i just want to plug something in and have it and have it work there's not going to be a lot of like electrical systems management from these customers you are absolutely right and that brings us to probably i would say the core of how we're personally selling uh, but also what we're seeing the market in this space look for which is ev charging is one of those unique animals you mentioned hospitality where it's unique in the sense that if you offer it and it doesn't work, the perception of your facility is becomes different. Right. <laughs> now, right. if you're, you know, if the lights out or you know the TV doesn't work in the hotel room or something, it causes nowhere near the impact that your EV charger not working does. You know, there's various reasons we think that is, but anyway, so what's happening is and you're right those facility man or those you know hotels especially hotels don't want to think about this stuff so being able to package it up in a way that is highly effective out of the box and by the way extraordinarily reliable because we're a breaker now we're falling under a completely different standard 
that becomes absolutely critical that you have a super reliable, super easy. I don't have to think about energy. I don't have to think about demand. I don't have to think about this stuff from a hospitality or multifamily or fleet perspective. That becomes a very powerful thing. But it's a culmination of kind of all this stacked on top of one another. Smart breaker, panel connected, dumb pedestal, <laughs> system level approach. Right. And this is like, if I'm the hotel owner, do I just plug and play and this thing runs itself forever? Or are you involved? Is Adam involved somehow in monitoring and running? Are you involved in operations at all? Once you install these things, like what's the, who, who takes over operations? I'd like to say we have a, a singular way of selling, but you know, it's such an early market still that we don't, we, we sell all the way down to just hardware all the way up to full managed services. So we have a 24-7 network operations center you know, within our facility that we monitor key customer assets um, that we have asset, uh, service agreements with. Particularly in hotels, that, that's one of those sectors that ask for that frequently because the hotels don't, they, they want to equate EV charging, rightfully so, to Wi-Fi. Like <laughs> you, you don't think about the router, or you don't think about the gigabits right. or whatever that is it's just like it needs to just work i can connect to it and it works that's it that's all i care about rightfully so and one other question about these ev control systems obviously the the first thing on everybody's mind is the sort of ev facing part of it managing which vehicles are charging and how much at what time but of course if you have this intelligence and software you also could think about communicating with the grid and so I wonder how much, because, you know, once you are getting up to 700, whatever, I don't know why we picked that number out, but we have 700. It's actually a project we have up in, uh, up in New York. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, you've got 700 vehicle charging stations and 700 vehicles charging, potentially. You've also got a fairly large, dispatchable, at least somewhat controllable load, which seems to me could be quite helpful on some congested grids so are you how how big of a piece is the grid facing intelligence in these things and how and i guess some of that depends on utilities and you know whether they're ready to do this kind of thing but i just wonder are you sniffing around in that space i would say the way we're approaching it is to answer your question your, your hunch is is dead on uh that is a major utility concern at scale is to be able to have some level of at least visibility, if not some level of demand responsibility, you know, in those in those events. We're not starting there. Uh, really, we're starting to satisfy what customers need right now. Like, what are the most important things for them in the sectors we're in? Um, so we see that as an evolution, and and it is happening. You know, we we are engaged in multiple utilities. Just to put that out there, but today. It's not so easy to say, okay, well, let's control all that. <laughs> you know, what first needs to happen is customers need to start utilizing. The utilization picks up. That utilization picks up more. Then those discussions, the real, like, what do we do about it discussions will start happening with utilities, we predict. It's going to force the question. If you've got 700 vehicle uh, loads coming on and off your grid, I mean, you kind of, you really can't just ignore that. That's true. That's true. But, you know, with the evolution of electric vehicles and the adoption rate, all 700 are going to be on today. I think that's the point is like as right. more and more vehicles come onto that system in relatively short order, you know, the next couple of years, then things become more apparent, right? Then things become more potentially problematic for the utility. And we do expect, you know, that there's an engagement with the utilities at various levels for, you know, some sort of a demand response tie in. Uh, we certainly see that. Mm. But we're not day one pitching that as part right, of right. the product's capable, absolutely capable. It's just, the, the connection rate you know, from the vehicles to the chargers has to pick up you know, more and more and more. And then eventually that, that will begin discussions you know, once it becomes problematic for the utility, but not, <laughs> not before it becomes problematic, typically. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that sounds right. So you're out there now selling these Correct. systems, these EV charging systems to fleets and campuses. I'm, I'm sort of curious, like who's, who are the customers so far? Like who's... Um, what sectors were most eager for something like this to to exist? Well, the initially fleet, so think parcel pickup delivery fleet. Um, that's where we kind of started off our you know sales was there. Multifamily is a close second at this point. You know, there there's this right. 
because they have the same pain points. They both need to have lots of chargers and they both have pain points associated with, well, effectively becoming a gas station, <laughs> you know, and try, <laughs> trying to minimize costs associated with that. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's one other thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about this earlier that, that since you mentioned multifamily, I'll just throw it in here. It's another sort of interesting application of this is if you are if you own condos or apartment buildings or something, you might want to have certain chargers dedicated to certain people or you might want to have certain chargers that are available only in certain times of day or you might want to have one charger that's shared between two yes. people who live in your apartment building. And all of that is, of course, you can do if you have this central control system. Yes. Right? Like you can you can do a lot of uh, micro fiddling with the <laughs> with the individual uh, spaces. Yep. Already built in, super easy to do. And so um, you know, the EV charging space is a very obvious application. Uh, of this, a place where some central control of multiple devices is most obviously needed, and and the demand is rising very quickly, and that and that whole industry or set of industries is in <laughs> really kind of like it's a crazy time of of ferment in and around that stuff. But you know, as I as we emphasized early on, as I emphasized when I wrote about this back in 2019, really like. There's no end to the possibilities here because the way I think about it is every single device on the grid is connected through a circuit breaker. And so if circuit breakers can become smart computing devices, then basically every device connected to the grid becomes smart or at least somewhat smart without having to put all that programming and smarts and computing power into the appliance itself, you're putting the intelligence in the connection to the grid. I don't know. The more I think about this, the more it kind of blows my mind that what you could do eventually, if some substantial portion of the millions and millions and millions of circuit breakers in the country become smart. I don't know. It just seems to open up like the sky's the limit kind of thing. So I'm just curious, like, you're moving into the EV space for obvious reasons. It's it's hopping. There's a serious demand for precisely this sort of thing. But do you have plans? Like, what's next after that? Because I could just think of, like, a million different. We do. As I think, hopefully the listeners have picked up, and I think through our conversation here, it's probably become apparent that EV charging for us is viewed as an application of the breaker, but not as the thing. Right. Um, much like many other things are. That will be scaling in the near future in a way that is unique, in a way that is very easy, and primarily of which becomes truly universal. So we are, you know, evolving product into a form factor that, you know, like we're universal today from a product standpoint. In other words, you can put us in any building, anywhere, doesn't matter, same product. And we're capturing right. 90% of the break market doing that. But we're in our own panel. As we evolve, that will shift into a form factor that fits into most panels, at least in the U.S. and can be adapted for the European markets and add further ability into the product to effectively be able to tell it what it is. So we see a future that um, the breaker that you have to buy anyway Instead of going and buying a meter or a control device or EV charger or a industrial control device, whatever it is, you just tell the breaker you're that thing and it does it. <laughs> That's the world we see now at scale, at, at extreme scale. I always like to think in kind of polar extremes. Extreme scale of that, because consumption defines the grid, not the other way around, is you effectively could have control of the entire grid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also obsolete about 80% of the electrical products on the market at extreme yeah, scale. That's, that's the other thing I was thinking about is like all those things you're talking about building into the circuit breaker. Those are entire freestanding industries, like longstanding industries. Correct. Like This is a huge amount of stuff consolidation here, if nothing else. Correct. I mean, I think what we're trying to do is, is I hate to use the phone analogy, but it's very similar. But in, the, in a little different way is that we're, we are looking to electrically speaking, unify the applications and unify the customers into one platform. I mean, many other industries have done that, most visibly the phone, you know, the 
Mm-hmm. You know, applications and the phones get used by everyone. And we want the same to happen in the electrical space. You know, that there's this massive gap that there are more electrical products on the market than probably any other industry because just over time, as the industries evolve, we've just made specific things for specific applications for specific customers. I mean, that's right. That's what EV chargers are. I mean, they're, they don't have to be that way, right? The, the breaker's <laughs> right. always been there, but it's not thought about much. So let's make that thing that actually does it since, well, it's part of the electrical system, right? You have to buy it anyway. It needs to be there. So let's, let's make that the universal thing. And I think that's where, you know, you mentioned the investment. I think that's probably where Adam Power differentiated because if you were going to go, you know, make that kind of investment, you know, the hundred million into say an EV charging company, the problem is it may not be a problem, but I mean, the way we look at it is, is, well, that's all that they do. The product charges a car. You can't use it for this. You can't use it for that. That is it. That is what it's going to do. Whereas Adam Power, it's like, it being an application of a universal device means that, well, I can, you know, as we see this market over here take off, we apply to that market. And we see this market over here, but we apply to that market. Why? Because all of them require breakers. Right. So uh, uh, like a, a facility with a central circuit board controlling multiple EV chargers, there's no reason that it couldn't plug other types of devices into that same circuit board and it could coordinate all of them Correct. alongside the EV chargers or with the EV chargers. Correct. There's nothing, nothing EV-specific about it. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, th- I'm thinking about scale here. One of the things I think people are starting to become familiar with are sort of smart panels at home. Like, the, you know, this company Span has this smart panel, which is sort of doing in the home what you're talking about doing with EV chargers at big facilities, which is just you know, controlling loads and balancing loads and timing things and, and and all this kind of thing. So in a sense, a smart panel like this in the home would kind of make the home into its own little microgrid, right? This own little independently managed microgrid. And I'm curious about scale. Like, what does it look like as you scale bigger and bigger? Is it just stacking these little circuit breakers on top of one another to eternity? That's actually a good, a really good fundamental question is that, you know, breakers cover a large swath of land when it comes to electrical space, right? They go all the way from, you know, technically 10 amps in the U.S. all the way up to 5,000 amps. What does a 5,000 amp circuit breaker <laughs> look like? Is it A refrigerator, presume? basically. Uh, right. But, but the point is, is like, you know, when you get into big distribution systems, you know, you start off with a Goliath utility and you finally work your way down to the small, what's called branch circuit breaker. That basically means mm-hmm. last breaker in the system. That's where we play is in that branch circuit breaker, meaning the last breaker in the system. And, you know, like I said, 90% of those are 100 amp and less. And so you capture that market, you effectively capture most of the grid, you know, at scale. So in other words, it's like saying 100 amp and less, 90% of your loads are on that, you know, and that's where we focus. I mean, if you let your mind drift in, in sort of futuristic utopian directions, like, because <laughs> I think about this stuff a lot, it's like, what sorts of things do you think could be unlocked? What sorts of things do you think could become possible when it's not just, you know, you have this occasional smart load here and smart load there, but suddenly, you know, the bulk, the majority of the loads on a grid are smart, controllable. I'm just curious, like, what do you think sort of like the emergent big picture effects of that will be? Like, what will intelligence do for the grid on kind of the macro scale? I think as you scale out, especially at that extreme end, you can do some pretty granular things like, you know, neighborhoods electrically are talking to one another. And that becomes apparent where you can shed load without interrupting someone's life and save a substation or save another generator from having to come online. You know, it kind of speaks to demand response, but in a different way that says it's not brute force, like shut things off. And instead, let's all talk to one another and know that, hey, uh, the conditions look like this. This home is unoccupied, likely because the electricity consumption is so low, like the imagination, like there's no limit, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing is 
again, because the consumption of electricity is what defines everything else, is once that becomes a unified platform, an understandable ecosystem made of billions of devices, that becomes very powerful in ways that I don't think we've even thought about yet. But at a high level, it means that now electrically you can speak to one another and it's not like you know, by home. It's not like, my oh, my home's pulling 20 kilowatts, your home's pulling 15. That doesn't tell you anything. What right. does tell you things is the patterns of usage of EV charging, of HVAC, of hot water, of lights, right. of receptacles. Like, right. There's a lot there that um, at scale gives you a ton of intelligence that you can do a ton of things with that, you know, I think the sky's the limit. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the base level, you are ensuring that every bit of electricity that's generated is used efficiently. Correct. And that alone is going to just take a huge whack off, I feel like, the demand for new power plants and new and new capacity. You're going to be able to avoid a ton of new generators and new, um, maybe even new high-voltage lines just by using the electricity you've got. Yeah, you, you just hit the core of the company, our company's thesis. This is actually <laughs> what we were founded on, which was... In the future, and this we started in 2014, there was going to be this probably once in a century event of transferring a lot of energy. Think of that not electrically, just pure energy onto the grid. Yeah. Uh, so that's happened. It's certainly happening now. I think we call that the energy transition now. But we had this thesis in 2014 to where we said, well, you basically have like three options there because the grid can't sustain that level of what we were predicting was going to be transferred on the grid, primarily by vehicles. You have kind of three options. You either create more generation somehow, even though like we're reducing <laughs> generation through baseload like coal and natural gas, rightfully so. You either do that, which is going to be really hard to do, or you have large scale energy storage combined with solar which we have one of those, not both, solar, not so much energy storage, or you have large-scale demand response, you know. But the way to do that is through a universal method, not not a disaggregated, like, you know, thermostat adjustment or a smart EV charger here but not there thing. It has to happen at a macro-level scale at the infrastructure level. So this is fundamentally why we actually started down this path, is sort of seeing that need in the market in the future. And this was 2014. This comes up over and over again. You talk about like transferring the heat, the heating load in like the frigid northeastern part of the country to electricity. That's A, a huge load. And B, the timing of that load is very different than the than the timing of the load it's 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 adding on to. And that's just, you either meet that with brute force by building a shitload of new generators and, and, and power lines and everything else, or you just got to get much, much, much smarter about how you use the power you've got. Yeah, and the, and the low-hanging fruit, at least conceptually, is that you can be a lot smarter, but it's hard to actually execute on that without a universal platform that fits right. all industries, which... At the end of the day, because, again, everything's fed from a circuit breaker, that needs to be the thing that is innovated on, not a new appliance. But it's really hard to do that. <laughs> Super hard to do. <laughs> I could go into why breakers are hard to, to actually innovate on. But nonetheless, it is the hardest path to pick. But you, I mean, you're there for a big chunk of applications and can see, at least in the future, uh, a form factor small enough to go into residential boxes. Yes. Right? Yes. And once it's in the box, it's programmable, which means it's not the same thing. It's not the, you know, it can be like you, like you keep saying, you know, like it can be a bunch of different things. Once it's in the box, it could be whatever we need it to be as needs evolve. This makes such sense to me. Like I remember, you know, when I first encountered it back in 2019, I was like, yeah, like if you have one kind of device that is required for every single electric load, then why not? make that the device that's smart instead of creating new smart devices for every different kind of load. Why not just make the one Lego building block that's the whole grid, make that smart, and then you've got like all your smart devices in one. Seemed sort of like a smack your head obvious kind of thing to me. So why why are you still the only one with a certified digital circuit breaker? Like I would think other people would be moving in this direction sooner or later. 
You know, what's interesting is that we weren't, I will tell you this, we were not the first ones to come up with the idea of a salt state breaker. The idea of that actually is quite old. Huh. Trace this back to the mid 80s, you know, of a semiconductor based circuit breaker by some large companies, you know. So two things. One is, I think the, the natural question after that would be, well, like, okay, well, why didn't anybody do it? Um, <laughs> so I think there was probably, let's start there. There's probably a couple of things. One is that the circuit breaker space is an interesting one. It really is. And the reason is, is because it is a super old industry yeah. that's basically dominated by four companies, you know, across most of the planet um, who've all been building breakers for over a century each. You know, that's just kind of the nature of this industry. So, um, by the way, worst pitch ever. Hey, we're going to build a new breaker uh, where four companies dominate the planet and it's all hardware and life safety. <laughs> Side note. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the point is, is it's a unique industry in that sense. So I think probably there were some innovators dilemma there a little bit because once you establish a means and methods and that's how things are done, it's really hard as a large company to move away from that and disrupt your own business. Yeah. And, and it seems like building tiny computers is very different than building tiny electromechanical devices. It, it doesn't, I mean, yeah. I, I don't really know very well, but it doesn't seem like a lot of transferable <laughs> knowledge. It's definitely a different field, right? I mean, once you say, hey, let's build a solid state breaker, you, you now get into the realm of power semiconductors and physics that don't, you know, haven't historically applied in uh, right. traditional circuit breakers. So there's a few things. I think one is there were some enabling technologies that evolved since the 80s, you know, like computing, especially and sensing and speed and power semiconductors, certainly. Mm -hmm. But I think the other piece of that is is a bit of the innovator's dilemma that says, well, you know, if I'm a company who's making breakers, but I'm also a company who's making industrial controls and I'm also a company who's now you know, making EV chargers. <laughs> right. It's so difficult, so difficult to say, well, why don't we just make that one device? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And cannibalize all our other product lines. Yeah. And it, look, rightfully so, it's difficult because they, if you've been set up that way and your company evolved that way, I mean, they're full of smart people. It's just, it's a structural challenge, right? To go do that. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Adam Power came out of the wood, woodwork in a way, and that, you know, we're all from the industry, me specifically. You know, I was an electrician. So I kind of uh, used to design buildings. So I was, I would like to say I think Adam Power had a view of the world that was much more simple and holistic that says, well, you know, why should products be defined by the application? Why can't the product define the application? Which seemed just a natural question. But then we just we started from there. I, I think that there are since Adam Power, there are emerging, I would say, technologies within established companies, as well as some startups who are trying to do effectively what we're doing. My view on this is we welcome it um, because, you know, coming from the industry, we believe what we're doing is the right thing to do. We also know we can't service every single customer base on the planet. <laughs> it's a lot of it's millions, millions and millions, as previously discussed. Well, I'm curious if somebody if, a, if another company makes a digital circuit breaker, do we know already that it will communicate with yours or does that remain to be hashed out? Like, is there a standards? Are there standards issues here? Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, like there's a, you know, there's a UL standard now that basically Adam Power defined the path for and, and established with UL. Um, but I, I meant more of the software kind of intercompatibility and, and, and I don't know anything about software, so I don't even know what the question is. To, but like, like insofar as this is meant to be a universal system, is it going to all be operating on the same sort of software protocols? So we do. Yeah. So yes and no. So we do see a world where from an application standpoint, in other words, if you're, say, a facility manager, right, and you have mm -hmm. one pane of glass you're looking at for software, interoperability between devices is going to be necessary. Right. You know, so the way we structured our product is that the sort of core firmware and stuff is proprietary because, well, it's hard to open source that because it's life safety. It's UL. It's like there's a lot right. of whiz bang stuff that happens in the breaker to make it do what it does. But then the layer on top of that, which says, well, OK, well, let's set this up as an EV charger. That layer of software, um, you know, we're open protocol and, um, you know, API based as well. So you could tie, you know, even today you can tie an existing building management system into our software, for example the way it should be for other you know other manufacturers if they if they come to the market 
Uh, but we, we haven't seen any actually come to the market yet. Because like I said, yeah. it's super hard to do this. And mm-hmm. I think it, it takes so much time and energy. Adam Power's dedicated years to this at this point. It's just, it's a it's hard thing to do. Was there any sort of public policy assistance or is this all private investment? And like, are you making money now? I'm curious, you know, because, you know, like a lot of industries, it's when you're going up against a super giant incumbent industry, you know, you need help to cross those first few humps. Has this all been uh, uh, private money so far? It has. Yes. And and you're out selling things for profit now. You don't need any, you don't feel like you need any help? Well, I mean. I'm not like you're going to turn down help. If, we if always welcome offered, help. But, uh, but not, <laughs> I mean, in the form of investment, we're capitalized uh, for right. for quite some time at this point. And our our goal is to not ever need to raise funds again. Um, that's that's mm. kind of, so we need to be, we are post-revenue, uh, uh, not pre-revenue, but as a company, we have to get to a sustainable level of profitability, right? right. Um, because from an investor and a market's perspective, the markets are very harsh right now on companies in the new energy space. Huh. Um, there's many publicly traded companies, that, especially the ones that went this back route, you can see this on right now, and, which is kind of a Goldilocks scenario because it's a high growth market, yet if you're not profitable, investors are punishing you. Mm. Uh, on valuation specifically. So we need to become a very profitable company in this space, but to sustain ourselves and to continue to grow products organically, right? And not continue mm-hmm. to raise money. That's what we're headed towards. So my point is, it's really hard to make money in the energy space, um, as the markets have shown. So the best companies are going to be the ones who have, you know, a sustainable technology, but also, you know, a sustainable business model to where they can take the profits and continue innovating to further, you know, advance and, and, and create solutions to the major pain points that are out there. I mean, this is our thesis. Like we have to become a profitable company. This is really fascinating to think about the sort of these Lego blocks that are composing, you know, really kind of composing the entire grid, thinking about all of them getting smart is really just uh you know for a sort of grid geek really lets your mind spin off in all in all sorts of interesting directions so uh thanks for taking the time and explaining this all to us and uh and good luck in your next steps david thank you i really appreciate the conversation today thank you for listening to the volts podcast it is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.